Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Wednesday Musings. I'd like to discuss with you several aspects of Israel's war with Hamas. But first, here are a number of quotes about war in general that I'd like to read to you. The first one is from the Tanhuma, quoting the Pasuk, the verse from Devarim, when you go to war against your enemies, and the Medrash asks, why does it say against your enemies? Because you obviously don't go to war against your friends. And the Medrash answers, said the Almighty, go up against them as enemies, just as they don't have mercy on you, don't have mercy on them. The second quote is from Rabbi Meir Kahana. He writes, In this deadly war, there are no gentlemanly rules of ethics. There are no things that we should not do lest we sink to their level. Far, far worse to sink six feet below that level. The next one is from William Tecumseh Sherman, the famous northern general during the Civil War. He said, Every attempt to make war easy and safe will result in humiliation and disaster. Another quote by him, I would make this war as severe as possible and show no symptoms of tiring till the South begs for mercy. Indeed, I know that the end would be reached quicker by such a course than by any seeming yielding on our part. Douglas MacArthur said, War's very object is victory, not prolonged indecision. In war, there can be no substitute for victory. And lastly, from Winston Churchill, In war, it does not matter who is right, but who is left. And let me pick up on that theme. We happen to be right in this conflict. God gave the land to us, not to the Arabs. We also happen to be more moral than our enemy. We aren't savages. They are. But honestly, it wouldn't matter one iota if the Arabs killed us less savagely or only killed soldiers instead of defenseless women and children. Because wars are not about morality. They're about living and not dying. That's the only thing we should care about. If watching videos of the barbarism of Hamas's fighters helps you hate them more and makes you even more determined to wipe them out, then by all means, watch the videos. I would say it's probably even a mitzvah to watch those videos in that case. But just remember, the reason we're fighting is not because they're savages. It's because they're determined to murder us. If they murdered us in a genteel fashion rather than in a barbaric fashion, nothing would change. We would still be obligated to crush them. And that leads me to my next point. We, the Jewish people, are obligated to crush our enemies. No one else is obligated to do so. Not the world, not Europe, and not America. It's our problem, not theirs. And there's something very strange, I would say almost wrong, about us demanding that non-Jewish nations condemn Hamas. First of all, who cares if they condemn Hamas? Do we need their validation? Second of all, how is it their business? Why should an American congressman, for example, spend even a second of his time worrying about our conflict with the Arabs of Gaza? Now, if an American official decides on his own to offer moral support, we should certainly be grateful. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Of course we should be grateful. But we should never demand it. We have no right, I think, as Americans to demand that American politicians support Israel. I mean, it might be okay if we demanded it because we cared about America's interests in the Middle East, but that's not why we're demanding it. Let's be honest. We're demanding it because we as Jews love Israel. And I don't think we should be imposing our connection to a country thousands of miles away on American politicians. On that note, I think we should be very weary of America getting involved in this conflict. And I think it's already way too involved. This war is between us and the Arabs of Gaza, and possibly the Arabs of the West Bank as well. It has nothing to do with America. And the more America is involved, the worse it will be for us. We shouldn't ask for a cent from America or ask for a single American soldier to be sent anywhere near Israel. Israel won its greatest two wars, its war for independence and the Six Day War, with zero American help. We don't need America, and any American involvement is likely to backfire. 
It will give America a far greater say on how Israel conducts this war, and that's the last thing we need. Israel is suicidal enough as it is. All we need is for America to try to inhibit Israel even more than it already inhibits itself. And that leads me to my last point. Israel fights with one hand behind its back thanks to its embrace of the innocent civilian doctrine, which holds that every person who isn't holding a gun in a conflict is innocent. I don't believe that's true, and I think you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone in the history of warfare who truly believed that to the depth of his being. And I say that because in war, it's often impossible to fight without killing so-called innocents. So if you're fighting, you're already implicitly acknowledging to some degree that killing civilians is not the same as murder. Let's examine some scenarios. An army wishes to conquer a city, so it besieges it. Who suffers in a siege? Only soldiers? If you think so, read the descriptions of the Roman siege of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Children starved to death. Women were so hungry that they ate their own children. Now, you may say that Jewish law demands that armies allow people to leave besieged cities. Well, first of all, the Ramban, Nachmanides, writes clearly that, that this law only applies during a Mechames Rishus, not a Mechames Mitzvah, which is what we're fighting in Gaza right now. Furthermore, do you think every civilian leaves when given the option to leave? Did every Ukrainian civilian leave Ukraine when given the option to do so? No, of course not. Older people, wives, and others stay behind for all sorts of reasons. Perhaps a woman doesn't want to abandon her husband. She wants to stand by her man. Does that make her guilty and therefore deserving of the death penalty? No, not really. And yet, a prolonged siege will kill her all the same. And that's okay, because that's war. The Nitziv essentially makes this point in his commentary to Beratius 9.5. That Pusik, that verse reads, However, your blood which belongs to your souls I will demand. Of every beast will I demand it. But of man, of every man for that of his brother, I will demand the soul of man. Essentially, it's a prohibition against murder. But it talks about your brother. So the Nitziv writes, Basically, God is explaining when is a person punished for killing his fellow man? At a time when he's obligated to conduct himself in a brotherly fashion. In other words, peacetime. But at a time of war, at a time, quoting Kohelas, a time to love and a time to hate, at a time of hatred, a time of war, then it's a time of killing, and there is no punishment on it whatsoever. Because that's the way the world was established. Essentially, war is part of life, and killing during wartime is not the same as killing during peacetime. It's a different category entirely, and it's not treated as murder. Let's take another scenario, an ancient sea battle. Ships battling other ships. It would seem that there are only guilty people involved. But is that really so? No. How about the rowers, the people rowing the ships, many of whom were slaves in ancient times? Are they guilty? The rowers of the ship, slaves, they don't even belong to the enemy nation. In what sense are they guilty? And yet you can kill them all the same. Indeed, you have to. If you refuse to fire on or refuse to ram an enemy ship because of the innocent slaves on the lower deck, you will be unable to fight. In other words, you'll have to lose. And no one thinks, besides for absolute pacifists, that you are required to lose to an enemy people. And yet fighting will require you to kill so-called innocents. Another example, two massive armies meet in a battlefield. Now this is really an ideal situation. You have fighters against fighters. And yet two points. Number one, among the many men on the field used to be flag bearers, people holding the flags. Men who didn't carry a weapon, but they carried a flag to rally the troops. Does that man deserve to die? Why? He didn't harm anyone. He's not going to harm anyone. And if he does deserve to die, why doesn't the soldier's wife back home who encourages her husband to fight deserve to die? 
How is she any different than the flag bearer? Second point. Honestly, is every fighter really guilty? Because we have this notion there's innocence and there's guilty people. That the, the fighters are guilty. Are they really guilty? Many fighters are just 18-year-old kids who have no interest in being on the battlefield. In what sense are they guilty? Zev Jabotinsky made this point 90 years ago. He wrote, quote, Do not dare to punish the innocent. This is superficial and hypocritical babble. In war, every war, every side is innocent. What crime has the enemy soldier committed against me? A pauper just like me, blind like me, a slave like me, who has been forcibly mobilized. All wars are wars of innocence, just as there is no war but the war of brothers against brothers. That is why every war and its agonies are cursed for aggressor and victim alike. If you do not want to hurt the innocent, commit suicide. And if you do not want to commit suicide, shoot and don't babble. Think about it. In your average war nowadays, maybe not the war against Hamas, but in your average war, is the soldier really guilty? How does putting on a uniform make somebody guilty? Does he hate you? Does he want you dead? No, he doesn't. He's on the battlefield because his government sent him there. That's all. As one of the German soldiers in World War I says in the novel All Quiet on the Western Front, almost all of us are simple folk. And in France, too, the majority of men are laborers, workmen, or poor clerks. Now, just why would a French blacksmith or a French shoemaker want to attack us? No, it is merely the rulers. I had never seen a Frenchman before I came here. And I'll be just the same with the majority of Frenchmen as regards us. They weren't asked about it, meaning about the war, any more than we were. End quote. And here's another passage from the same novel. Krop, it's the name of one of the soldiers, on the other hand, is a thinker. He proposes that a declaration of war should be a kind of popular festival with entrance tickets and bands, like a bullfight. Then, in the arena, the ministers and generals of the two countries, dressed in bathing drawers or armed with clubs, can have it out among themselves. Whoever survives, his country wins. That would be much simpler and more just than this arrangement, where the wrong people do the fighting. The author of this novel is correct. It's really the leaders who should go out on the battlefield and fight, not the soldiers. The leaders are the only ones who are really guilty, no one else. As Ariel Sharon said to the settlers during the disengagement, attack me, he said, don't attack the soldiers coming to remove you from your homes. They're just following orders. In a sense, he was right. Only Ariel Sharon was truly guilty. And in the same sense, only Adolf Hitler was truly guilty for World War II, since he single-handedly plunged the world into it. Does that mean, though, that America and England were only morally justified in trying to kill Adolf Hitler and no one else? No, of course not. America and England killed tens of millions of Germans and Japanese soldiers and civilians, all plunged into war because of one man, Adolf Hitler. Only Adolf Hitler was truly guilty, and yet tens of millions of others suffered. We killed tens of millions of people for the crimes of one man. Why? Because soldiers are guilty in war, whether they're interested in fighting or not, and the same is true of the people back home. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. In war, you have the front line and the home front. Soldiers need to eat. Soldiers need to wear clothing. Soldiers need to shoot bullets. Who do you think grows the food, sews the clothing, and manufactures the bullets, if not civilians back home? And who does the soldier fight for, if not for his wife and children? Whose pictures does he hang up besides his bed in his barracks, if not theirs? Which means that they, meaning the women and children back home, effectively are threats as well. Without their moral support, without their existence, the soldiers would not fight. Home and hearth is why a soldier fights. An academic studied this question decades ago in Israel. He examined questionnaires of soldiers. When asked why they fought, 
these soldiers did not answer Zionism. They didn't answer Israel. They answered, we fought for our families. And that's another reason why these people back home are guilty, because they're arguably the very cause of the war itself. Let me make one final comment on this topic. Nuclear war is based on collective punishment. If Beijing drops a nuclear bomb on Washington, D.C. tomorrow, we will respond by dropping a nuclear bomb on Beijing, even though that will mean the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Chinese civilians instantly. In an article he wrote 20 years ago, Rabbi Michael Broyd notes that postgame like Rabbi Yaakov Ariel, based on the Maharal, believes that war is a collective enterprise, one society against another, and thus anyone who belongs to the collective is a legitimate target. At the same time, Rabbi Broyd makes the astonishing comment that Halacha would forbid using nuclear weapons in response to a nuclear attack. The comment is astonishing because the subtitle of his article is, Jewish law is not a suicide pact. Well, if you claim that halacha forbids engaging in nuclear war, then it indeed is a suicide pact, which it surely is not. God and the Jewish people have often treated our enemies as collectives. Did every Mitzri in Mitzrayim deserve to be punished by the ten plagues? Did every citizen in Nineveh deserve to die? Did every Midianite man deserve to be slaughtered when the Jews took revenge on Midian? Did every one of the 3,000 men and women who gathered to see Shimshon in chains deserve to die when he destroyed the building on top of them? Does every Amalekite deserve to die? Presumably not. And yet, here is how the Rambam explains this mitzvah to wipe them out. Quote, in the same way as one individual person is punished, so must also a whole family or a whole nation be punished in order that other families shall hear it and be afraid and not accustom themselves to practice mischief. End quote. My point is simple. War is a collective enterprise. It's one nation against another, one people against another. World War II wasn't a battle between the American army and the Japanese pilots who bombed Pearl Harbor. It was America versus Japan. And when one collective fights against another, every member of that collective is fair game, especially those providing material and emotional support to the fighters, and especially those who act as human shields and thus pose a danger by their very presence. So to review, number one, war is about winning, not morality. Number two, it's our job to fight this war. No one else's. Number three, American involvement in this war will harm Israel, not help it. And number four, there is no such thing as an innocent civilian in wartime.